0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. These 12 verses are incredible. They are the world's response to the return of Jesus Christ. When he comes with power and great glory, riding a white horse coming down from heaven... He is going to have some battles on earth as the unsaved men and women of the earth will seek to fight against Jesus, to dethrone him and to kill him, and he cannot be defeated. He is going to win every battle. He's going to come down, and you'll see when we get to Isaiah, uh, beginning in chapter 63, you'll see that he comes down to Bozrah, to Basrah, and he's going to have a battle down there, and it's going to be a phenomenal battle, and he wins. He's going to go from there up to the valley of Armageddon, ar-megiddo and there in this triangular valley up in the up in the galilee there'll be a great battle against the world and he will win and then he makes his way from the valley of har Megiddo. he'll come right down to the city of jerusalem and there the enemy forces are gathered to fight against our savior and he wins wow he is triumphant over everyone and over everything what a great god what a great Savior. Oh, I pray tonight. I want you just to be encouraged. I want you to have hope. Like, not just a little bit of hope. I want you to have a hope that wells up into exceedingly abundant joy. Because life is hard, life is difficult. But we have such good news, and the celebration at our great Savior is coming. And we can experience this on a day-to-day basis. But we're going to look at these 12 verses and see what happens after Jesus comes back to this planet to rule for a thousand years in righteousness. What is the response of the people? Let's pray. Father, help us to see and understand clearly from the text of Scripture what is going to take place in the future. We know and understand that the Lord Jesus himself will put down every nation that opposes him, He will save the remnant of believers who have trusted him for their salvation alone. He will establish an earthly kingdom for 1,000 years to demonstrate that a man, after your own heart, a man can rule justly and righteously, but it's the God-man who can do it. Adam failed, David failed, but Jesus will succeed. I thank you, Father, for our King, our Messiah, our Savior. And we rejoice at this chapter and the great noise and shout of praise that this world will experience someday, and I pray someday soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, give us hope in these days of sometimes hopelessness. Give us meaning and purpose that we could live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ, that we would not set our affections on things down here which may satisfy for a moment, but Father, we want eternal joy, abundant joy, exceedingly great joy. We are looking for the day when we see our Savior face to face. We ask you to do a great work in our hearts and our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't that true? Aren't you living for that day? The one day that we live for is the day when we see Jesus face to face. I look at Isaiah 25, again, following chapter 24. You saw what happened this morning. This morning in the text of Scripture... In the text of scripture in Isaiah chapter 24, we saw that in the first uh, verses, the first six verses, the whole earth is devastated. Jesus comes back, he takes the vegetation, he takes the fresh water, he takes the ocean water, he takes a third of all of those, all of man's resources, so that man will run to Jesus and and trust him. The majority will not. So then Jesus takes all of the green grass, every leaf, every tree, he takes all of the ocean water, all of the fish, he takes all of the fresh water, there's no drinking water, there's going to be death galore. The, Bi- the Bible says that the earth will be violently broken, violently ripped apart, almost like a tennis ball that comes apart at its seams. It will totter in outer space like a drunk going down the street. Why is he doing all this? He wants men and women humbled before him. He wants them crying out in faith to, to, him, to Jesus. And, and that's the goal, is that men and women, boys and girls, will place their trust in Jesus alone. Well, after these devastating days, we saw in verse 23 this morning that when Jesus comes back, the sun and the moon, by the way, are two most luminous bodies out in the heavens, right? For for the daytime, nothing beats the sun. To see the sun out on these spring days is phenomenal, or actually, end of winter days, phenomenal. When we see the moon at night, wow, it's glorious. But when Jesus comes back, the Bible says the white one, the moon, is going to be disgraced. And the sun, which Isaiah calls the hot one, will be ashamed. I think the, the sun is going to say this. For all these 6,000 years of human history, I've shone brightly on the earth, given people sunburns and tans and heating their planet. And all that I've done is nothing compared to my creator, Jesus. So I think the sun is even going to be just ashamed because it is useless in the very presence of God. So this is Jesus coming back. Now, Isaiah 25, we can break into three pieces. It starts out with a very personal song. It's like Isaiah is standing up by himself, singing a song of praise. I believe those who survived the seven years of tribulation, the believers will stand up and they will sing this song. They will have experienced it, and they will then be able to proclaim these words. Then, after we see a little personal song, then God says, here is what I have done for you. Oh, you will not believe what he has in store for us and for Israel. But then thirdly, there's going to be a corporate song when the whole world will gather together and sing a song of praise to God. So it's a a solo, a personal song. Then what God is going to do for the remnant or for the believers. And then we'll end with a gigantic, big corporate song of worship. Look at chapter 25, these first verses. A very personal song here. Oh, Lord... You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So the the writer, and I believe it's Isaiah, but Isaiah picturing a future believer, after you experience all of the vegetation being burnt, can you imagine your your front yard and your backyard burning? And then you go out to, to get some water and there's no fresh water, there's no ocean, there's no water, there's no sun, moon, or stars? Absolute desolation. When you survive all of that, you can't help but say, oh God, you are my God. I, if there's any God I could ever want, it's a God who can do this to planet Earth. It's a God who can intervene and save and deliver and destroy. So he cries out, oh Lord, you are my God. You are personally the God that I trust and that I want. And I am so thankful that you are the one in my life that is God. See, I think that's going to be the, the attitude. Then he says, I will exalt you. I will magnify you and I will lift you up. There is no one greater. There was no, no one more powerful. I will exalt you. And then I will praise your name. I will, I will repeat all of the attributes of your name, all of the things that you have done to save and to deliver us. And then the Bible says you have done wonderful things. To actually survive seven years of tribulation, like the Bible speaks, is going to be a miracle. Some wonderful things are going to take place. unparalleled salvation will take place during those seven years and people will cry out, Lord, you have done wonderful things. By the way, the word wonderful, it means supernatural, out of the realm of the ordinary. That is the kind of God that I want. A God who can bring a whole nation across a river as He, or the Red Sea as he splits it wide open. This is the kind of God that I want to serve is a God who is able to do wonderful, wonderful things to deliver us. Then he says this, your counsels of old, are faithfulness and true. You see, none of these things are accidents. God has a divine plan for the earth. He has a divine plan for your life. He had you born here during the church age for a purpose. He has you serving here in this church for a purpose. His counsels are of old in everlasting. Can you imagine everlasting in the past? Before there was an earth, before there were a sun, moon, and stars, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they just have each other. That's all they need. But they have each other, and they're for eternity past. They're talking and fellowshipping. Like, what kind of conversations would the God have had for eternity past? I can't even fathom eternity past. God has never ceased to exist. He's always been. And sometime in eternity past, with their infinite knowledge, they said, we'd like to design an earth. We'll, we'll make Earth the center of a solar system in the middle of a huge, gigantic, complex galaxy, system of galaxies. And then we're going to create men in our image. They'll have intellect, emotion, and ability. They'll be able to relate to us. But you know what? We're going to give them free will. So they're not robots. They, they can respond to us in love if they choose. But you know what? We already know when we create these people, we already know they're going to fall into sin. And they're going to be ripped from a relationship with us. And I will have to punish them and send them to a lake of fire. But... Jesus, you are the second person of the Godhead. Would you go down and save them from their sin by taking upon yourself flesh? But the condition is, when you become a a baby born of a virgin, you will forever have a flesh body. You will never be back to spirit God. You will always have a body for all eternity. Are you willing to do that? Yes, Father, I am. Can you imagine the councils of old that were taking place? And everything is faithfulness and true. God is faithful to his plan. He is committed to his plan. When Jesus came, he had many opportunities to go back, didn't he? Before he was nailed to the cross, even as they were holding him down to nail him to the cross, Jesus could have said, Enough! I'm not going one step farther for this people. He could have, but he's faithful and he's true. He's made a commitment to us, and he's going to follow the plan all the way through. Now, don't you think he would expect us to do the same thing? Boy, he would want to see faithfulness and truth in our life. That we would say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. Let me serve you, and I will be faithful and true. See, this is what he's expecting. So the, the man, woman, who, whoever stands up at the end of the seven years, they're going to say, oh, Lord, you are my God. There is no other God but you. You are mine. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Your counsels are of old. You had this plan fashioned before eternity, even in eternity past, and you are faithful and true to deliver all of them. Wow. What a song. And then it goes on. Listen to this. Verse uh, 2. For you have made a city a ruin. I think the city could be the planet Earth again, like it was this morning. He just makes the whole Earth a ruin. He undoes creation. Everything he took six days to create, he's simply going to speak and have it taken apart. A fortified city, a ruin. A place of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Because you know... these cities are going to be laid waste and they're never going to go back to those same old cities. Jesus will regenerate the earth, but it's going to be incredible. Amos says this, when Jesus comes and recreates the earth, somebody who plants seeds, now how often, okay, when you plant a seed, when do you harvest? Months later, or weeks later, but months later, right? You plant the seed, you wait for months and then you harvest. Amos chapter nine says, the planter is going to plant the seed and they will be overtaken by the reaper. You're planting wheat seed, and as the wheat is going in the ground, you hear somebody's tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, would you move over? I'm busy reaping the harvest you just planted. It's going to be that fast. You'll put a grape seed in the ground, a vine is going to grow up, and it's going to have the greatest, juiciest, luscious grapes you can imagine. Can you you imagine what Jesus is going to do to this world? He does wonderful things. Well... What else are they going to praise them about? Verse 3, Therefore the strong people will glorify you. You know who Christians are considered now? Christians are considered the weakest people on earth, aren't they? We are just considered weak, without power. But hey, we have a powerful Savior. And the strong people, the ones are strong, are left standing at the end of the day. They will glorify God. The city of the terrible nations, they will fear God. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress. Listen, they will be praising Jesus because he is a refuge in the midst of a storm. During the days of tribulation, they will cry out and say, Lord, we don't know if we're going to survive tonight with our family. We trust you. Save us. Let us survive another day, another week of the tribulation until the Lord's glory is appearing. And he will save some. and, And they will be able to enter the kingdom alive. But, who does he save the poor and the needy who's the ministry to the poor and the needy and the helpless the self-sufficient and independent they get dropped way down they get humbled but the humble the poor and the helpless jesus christ will raise up he uses two illustrations of nature he uses uh, a thunderstorm now i don't know we've experienced thunderstorms here they're no different in the middle east but thunderstorms can be very very dangerous Pastor Joe was talking in Sunday school this morning about some of the, the um, activity on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually a volcanic cone. That was a volcano at one time. And so around the little Sea of Galilee, which is 11 miles by, by five and a half, six miles, there's a, a whole ridge of, of uh, mountains around the, uh, or hills around the, around the Sea of Galilee, and the Mediterranean winds come up, and sometimes they can dip right down, and they begin to churn, almost like a tornado around that valley. And I've been out at the sea where it's been glass calm, and then at two o'clock, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you'll see a, li- a few little ripples, and then the next thing you know, the waves are crashing against the beach. Incredible. See, thunderstorms can be very, very scary because they are life-threatening. And so he uses an illustration of a life-threatening thunderstorm. What do we do in a storm? We seek shelter. The shelter that the people seek is Jesus. He is their shelter in the time of storm. And then the second illustration is heat. Now I love heat. There's unremitting heat in the Middle East. And you know what? There's the greatest thing in the Middle East, if you're down in the desert, I did some archaeology in Shan, and it was absolutely scorching hot. And you would just wait for a cloud, just a simple little cloud, to pass in front of the sun, and it's like, wow, it's like 10 degrees cooler now, just from a little cloud instantly passing in front of the sun. This is what God is like when the storm and the heat is coming on us. He's like a cloud that just passes right through instantly, and we find relief. This is our refuge. This is our strength. Here's what it says in verse 4. You have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens, all the foreigners, the unbelievers, as heat in a dry place. Here it is. As heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. So the song of the world is going to be fading out. All the entertainment of the world the drink of the world, the food of the world, all of that is going to diminish. It'll have no appeal. And then the song of the righteous will rise up. So this is the song that is sung at the end of the seven years for the praise of God. But now look at what God does for the people. He does this. He prepares a great feast. Did you know that? There's going to be a barbecue to beat all barbecues. Here's what it says in verse 6. And in this mountain, what mountain is that? Mount Zion, which is where? Jerusalem, which is where the Temple Mount stood, which is where Jesus was crucified, which is where Abraham offered Isaac. On that very piece of land, listen, everybody, I could take you to the airport right now. I could buy you, well, I couldn't buy you a ticket, but you could get your own ticket. We could fly from our airport to Tel Aviv. I could get a rented car, take you from Tel Aviv up the Ayalon Valley into the city of Jerusalem. I could park the car and walk with you into the old city, and we could walk up onto the Temple Mount. And right there, at that very spot, Jesus is going to have a banquet with you and I. He'll have a banquet with, actually, it's going to be Israel and the church. Here's what he does, and in this mountain, on that very piece of property where Jesus was crucified, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. The very best and the freshest of grape juice that has just been squeezed and all the pulp is right there still at the bottom, it's going to be rich with content And the best meat, full of fat, it even says, we're not going to have a cholesterol problem. There's going to be fatty meat, the very best cuts of meat. He's going to lay them out on a grill, and we are going to feast and have a great coronation for our king. Now, do you believe me when I say we're going to eat and drink in that day to the glory of God? Absolutely. You are going to be having the choicest of meats and the freshest of juices to be able to eat and to celebrate the coronation of King Jesus. I think, because this is the start of the Millennial Kingdom, I think it also corresponds to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who is the, who's the bride? You and I are. You and I, at this feast, are going to have a special place. Listen, everybody. You are the bride of Christ. I don't understand it. He's going to introduce the bride of Christ to the world. And we're going to be seated in Jerusalem at a table and the Lord will bring the choicest of meats and the best of fruit juices for us to enjoy in those days. Maybe even living water that flows out of the temple. Who knows? It's going to be a glorious day of celebration. Isn't he a great God? What he does for us? And there's nothing sinful about that. It's a great time of rejoicing. He's going to give two gifts. These are the two greatest gifts you could ever ask for. Better than a new car. Better than a fancy vacation. Whatever you might want or dream. These two gifts that the Lord gives us at the party. Actually, he's provided them way before the party, but he brings them to attention here. They are the grandest and the greatest of gifts. Let me introduce to you the first gift, verse 7. And he will destroy on this mountain, on that same hilltop, he will destroy the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. You know what the the covering is that is like a, a blanket over planet Earth? I wish I had my globe out here. I have a globe from my dad's house. I wanted to bring it out and put a a towel over it because there is a blanket over planet earth right now and it is a thick blanket and it is suffocating. It is the blanket called death and it affects every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. Since Adam and Eve had to dig up the body of their son Abel to make sure, yes, our son is really dead, to the time when I don't know who died first, Adam or Eve, but can you imagine that funeral? Because Adam and Eve died a physical death and they were buried in the ground. Can you imagine when Adam died, people gathered around and said, he was God's first creature, creation. His body is lifeless and soon it will be dust. Every one faces death and it is a suffocating blanket on the planet. But here it says up on that mountain where we're going to have a feast, G- Jesus is going to destroy the surface. He's going to destroy the blanket that covers the earth. This veil that is spread over all nations. Nobody, nobody can escape death. I mean, we can through the rapture, but that's, that's it. Nobody can escape, uh, can escape death. My favorite verse is verse 8, by the way. I told you I, my favorite verse is in here. Here it is, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. Listen. Listen. Death has swallowed up Adam and Eve and Seth and Cain and Abel and man and woman after man and woman. Death is like a gullet, like a throat that never loses its appetite. And it swallows one after another after another. I can't even tell you how many funerals I've done since I've been a pastor. I think one year, I, I think I did 13 in one year in our church. 13 people that, I, that's a lot, that's a lot of death. And I've seen death and I've been by death and I've, I've watched it. I've watched it swallow up people. Death is a throat, a gullet, that just swallows and swallows and swallows. And here, Isaiah says, on this mountain, the Messiah King will swallow up death. He will take a giant gulp of death. And then it says, he will swallow up death forever. Now, Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in... Wait now, death is swallowed up in... Victory. Oh, come on. Death is swallowed up in victory. Yes. Jesus swallowed up death and we have victory over death. Death has no fear for me. I am not afraid to die. Listen, my body when it goes in the grave, sure, the shell is dead and the shell goes in the body or the shell goes in the ground and it becomes dust, but I will guarantee this body which is sown in weakness is going to come out in strength. This body, which is sown in shame because it's been corrupted by sin, is going to come out a vibrant, glorified body. Two hands, two feet, two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. I'll have an intellect, an emotion, and a will that is all directed to Christ my Savior. With these very eyes, when they shut in death, my very eyes will open. These eyeballs will see Jesus someday in glorified form. These hands, although someday they may, clo- they may be silent or, or un- immovable in death, someday these very hands right here are going to touch Jesus. They will. They'll be glorified, but I will touch Jesus with these very hands. Not somebody else's hands, but these hands. See, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? What's the answer? There is none. Because the strength of sin, uh, of death is, is the law. And sin has no part of us anymore. See, death has been swallowed up in victory. So at this great feast... Jesus Christ will say, everyone, you have eternal life because death was swallowed up on the cross. I swallowed up death at the resurrection. It cannot touch you. It cannot harm you. There'll never be another funeral. There'll be no more death here. No more death ever again, forever. See, that's awesome. Doesn't death plague us? I hate death. I hate it. But God has taken care of it. Look at the second gift. So the first gift is he destroys death entirely. Uh, swallows it up forever. And then the next part, verse 8, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Oh, the sorrow that comes with life. Jesus will wipe away our tears. I think maybe personally. He'll say, Oh, child of mine, you have suffered greatly on earth. There has been trial and trouble time and a time and time again. And you have wept and wept on planet earth, but now weep no longer. I will wipe away every tear from your eye. And you will never have that hurt feeling of sorrow, grief, of a loss. You will never have a sense of loss anymore. You'll be back to restored human beings. See, that's exciting. Those are two great gifts. To say death is over, swallowed up forever, and there will be no more tears. Because tears are a part of our life, aren't they? Revelation 21, 4 says the same thing. At that point, Jesus will wipe away every tear from her eyes. Well, then it goes on and says this, The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. His people are Israel. Hasn't Israel been spoken against by many people? In our own generation, people speak against uh, Israel. Even our own country, not coming to Israel's aid and standing with the prime minister and uh, their need for safety in a very volatile region. God says there'll be a day when nobody will speak evil of the Jewish people ever again. The rebuke, the reproach of Israel will be gone forever. To be Jewish in those future days will be the most glorious thing. I like how Zechariah says it in chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 says in the millennial kingdom, a Gentile will come to a Jewish man and grab his sleeve. It says that. They will tug at a Jewish man's sleeve and say, take me to Jesus because I know you know him. I want to meet Jesus. Take me to be with Jesus. And a Jewish man will say, okay, let me introduce you. I can't wait for that day. I want to watch that take place. So this is what the Lord does. He has a gigantic feast, a large barbecue, a celebration of his kingship, but also the marriage to the church. And uh, during the feast then, I think the Lord is going to say, I have destroyed death forever. It took place on the cross of Calvary and right next door here, the empty tomb Death has been swallowed up forever. There is a complete victory. And no more tears, everybody. I will dry them all up. You'll never have to sorrow again. All right, look at, now the end. Look at verses 9 to 12. This now changes to a corporate song, a group song. And it shall be said in that day. That's such a key phrase for these end, end times. And it shall be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. Notice it's not, you are my God. It's, you are our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. See, that's what they were, for those seven years, they would get together in assemblies like this and say, let's wait on the Lord. You know, by midnight, the Lord will save us somehow. We don't know how, but the enemy is all around us. Those who want to give us the mark of the beast, they're going to come through the door anytime, but let's wait and trust the Lord. He will deliver us. And they waited for the Lord, and he delivered them just like he said he would. See, that's true faith. So that's what they're going to say. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, what mountain is that? Mount Moriah, it's the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's where Abraham offered Isaac. It's where Jesus was crucified. It's where the temple stood. On that mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. I think it means this: the hand of the Lord will rest with blessing upon His people. You know, the hand is a place of safety. Anything in my hand is usually pretty safe. Well, not true, but it should be. You know what I'm saying? The, the hand is just a place of safety so it's like the lord's hand will rest on his people and in order to hurt his people you've got to get through his hand so the lord will, his hand will rest on us in blessing and then it says as we look at this text moab shall be trampled down under him so the believers will have the hand of blessing the enemy moab is picturesque of all the enemy the the enemy Of God shall be trampled down under Him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap, for the manure pile. I have no experience working with manure or anything like that, but I can almost imagine straw being put in a refuse heap or a manure pile and being stamped down, and um, and that's what's going to happen to all the enemy of Jesus. They're going to be taken. They're going to be taken down. Verse 11. He will spread out his hands in their midst, as a swimmer reaches out to swim. You know how a swimmer is to do the front crawl? You're supposed to reach as far in front of you as possible to to bring your hand down through the water. So the Lord is going to reach all the way around the uttermost ends of the earth and he will draw the enemy and put them away. Just like a swimmer. See, God knows all about swimming. He's going to stretch out his hand and gather all the unsaved, put them over here. And then all the saved, he's going to give a blessing with his hand. He's going to protect and to guard them and to keep them. He will bring them down. He will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands because often with attitudes come actions. The fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down. He will lay low. There's no defense against the Lord. He will bring to the ground uh, and bring to the ground down to the dust. All of their fortified defenses, he will have no problem conquering. See, this is the victory that Jesus gives us. Victory over death, no more sorrow, no more tears, What a great God! What a great Savior! Hey, take your Bibles. One last text: Zephaniah chapter three. I mentioned it this morning, but I really think we should look at it. Zephaniah chapter three. Just for just a moment, please. Verse uh, chapter three. Verse fourteen. Really, the whole text deserves justice to be spoken through. I love the three chapters of Zephaniah. One of my favorite minor prophets is Zephaniah, Zeph. Chapter 3, verse 14. Listen to what he says here. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst you shall see disaster no more. So complete is his deliverance, so complete is his salvation. The king of Israel is in their midst. They can look upon him. Verse 16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Why why would they not have to fear? Zion, let not your hands be weak. Why? Here's why. The Lord your God is in your midst. When he's physically present we are going to be so full of courage. If we only knew how close he is to us during the week, we'd be so full of courage in witnessing and in serving him. When we re- if we really saw how close he was, it, hey, listen, wouldn't it make a difference if Jesus walked with you physically tomorrow everywhere you went, and you went to work and he walked with you, he was physically right next to you, just encouraging you, saying, don't worry, if anybody gives you a problem, I'll take care of them. I'd be like, "Thank you, Lord." Uh, You have a question about this? Just ask me. I have the answer. Thank you, Lord. I mean, I would be so full of courage, just knowing physically. But He is with me, isn't He? He's with me wherever I go. He is near, and so the whole. This is the whole idea. Don't be afraid. Verse. uh, Look at the end of uh, verse seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So the Lord will quiet us down. He'll say, shh, you guys, quiet. And then he'll start to sing. He'll say, don't be afraid. The battle's over. The enemy is gone. Death cannot hurt you. Your tears are wiped away. I'm going to sing to you. And then the Lord will start to sing. Maybe there's instrument accompaniment. I don't know. But he's going to start to sing. And what is he going to sing? I don't know either. But it's going to be gorgeous. And and he will quiet us down. Look at verse 18, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its its reproach is a burden. Anybody sorrowing or suffering at the time, he's going to bring to the appointed assembly maybe this great feast and he will say, "Your, your sorrow is done, your tears are over. Weep not, weep no more. And then finally, verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at that time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. And when he says it's good. When he says it, it's good, isn't it? Wow, what a Savior. So that's what Isaiah 25 is about. What happens after Jesus comes back? Well, people are going to sing individual songs to Jesus, and then he's going to have a great feast for us, and he's going to show us death has truly been gone, taken care of, and tears are forever gone. And then he will then there'll be a gigantic corporate worship song as we say, "Lord, you have reached out like a swimmer and taken the enemy away and you have rested your hand upon us. Thank you, Jesus." You are our God, and we will serve you for all eternity. Isn't that a great song? Now, chapters 26 and 27 of Isaiah, we get more of the same type of thing, different types of songs that will be sung to Jesus. So the next week, by the way, we'll be looking. And by the way, chapter 26 has some incredible resurrection verses. So this is very timely for Resurrection Sunday coming up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement that we have that up on that mountain called Mount Moriah or Calvary, or Golgotha, or Mount Zion. Jesus died for our sins, and right next door he was laid in a, in a tomb, but he rose from the dead bodily, and he gives eternal life to everyone who believes. That is thrilling, Father, that right there on that mountain, death was destroyed forever. It was swallowed up in victory, but also every tear someday will be wiped away And not one more tear will be shed, because the Lord our God will be in our midst. Thank you, Father, that with Jesus comes ultimate victory, and that we can have eternal hope. We can have such great, great hope, because we know and we love Jesus Christ. So I pray this week you would help us through all of the details of our life. There'll be issues and problems with relationships, and at home and at work. There'll be struggles. There'll be things that seem overwhelming, and yet you are in control, and we can trust you. Thank you, Father, for working in our church and in our lives. We just pray that this week would be many opportunities to share the gospel, to be a good witness, and also to serve one another. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.